Well, I have been having such a great time having conversations with so many of you who are reading through your Bibles as we as a congregation read through the scriptures together and then teach on it on Sunday morning. And it's been great to hear your questions. Some of you have been asking some very difficult questions. And I warned you at the beginning of the series back in September that one of the things we were really, really concerned about is that people didn't start to feel guilty if they fell behind in their readings. And I started to hear some of that last week. Some people who kind of had given up because they got too far behind. I'm never going to get catch up and maybe I'm a bit of a type A personality, so I can't skip. I just can't skip ahead. I've got to read everything. Other people who are kind of comparing their reading progress to the reading progress of people in their small groups and they're concerned about that. So today we're going to have a year of Jubilee. Remember the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament? It was the year when all debts were forgiven and all sins were forgiven. If you'd fallen into slavery, you got released. If you'd fallen into debt, all your debts were paid off for you and everybody got a fresh start. And the year was signified by the, by the blowing of a ram's horn. Now, I looked everywhere in my basement and I couldn't find one. But the good news is I found an app. So I'm going to blow this horn and when I do, you are all forgiven of your Bible reading misdeavors and falling behindedness, and we are all going to be caught up and get a brand new start. Are you ready? All right, let me see. You have to blow into the mic thing here. Just that easy. You're done. At the first service, it kept going off and going off as I was preaching. I was about ready to throw my phone out the window, but there are no windows, so. Um, we, we start at the very beginning of the story of creation, God creating heaven and earth, and it was good. He creates Adam and Eve, and it's very good. And Adam and Eve choose to live outside of God's commands. They sin. They express an act of mistrust to God, and they get expelled from the garden. And their relationships with each other, with their family, with their friends, with their community, and with the Lord fall apart. And the relationship with God in particular becomes marked with distrust. God raises up Abraham and calls Abraham to become the man that will give leadership to his people. And he makes a promise with Abraham, land, children, and blessings. And he sends him out. And he says, Abraham, I want you to go and you're going to follow me and live my ways. And when people see how you live, they're going to see what it means to follow me and what it means to be one of my children. And more and more people are going to come and give their lives to me. Israel then falls into slavery under the Egyptians for 400 years. Moses comes along and leads them out of slavery through the wilderness for 40 years and brings them to the edge of the promised land. Last week as we looked at the book of Joshua, we talked about the entering of the land and the dividing up the land and everybody getting their portion. And they were entering into the land of milk and honey. And as we get onto the very first part of Judges, we have gotten to the land. They're on the verge of going in. They're getting there. They're getting set up. They've got their inheritance or their portion that the Lord has allotted to them. They've got the Ten Commandments. They know how they're supposed to treat each other. They know how they're supposed to worship. They know how community is supposed to work. They know how they're supposed to treat their neighbors. They've been warned about certain practices with their neighbors. And so as we get to the book of Judges, we all are just kind of like, Oh, now it's going to get good. All the disobedience, all the lessons that they had to learn in the wilderness, all the battles that they had to fight to get settled into the land, those are all done. And as they now enter into the promised land, this is going to be great. 
finally, we're going to get to some good reading. Well, let me just read you Judges chapter 2. We'll start at verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each of his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done in Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance, in the land at timnath Harris, and in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals, the gods of the other religions. They forsook the Lord and the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt, and they followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And in his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to the raiders who plundered them, and he sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, just as he had told them, just as he had warned them. And they were in great distress. Well, maybe it gets better in chapter 3. Um, chapter 3, verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of their neighboring and the king and to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. And again, and again, and again, throughout this book, again and again and again. We were on the verge of something great. We were expecting something so much better than what we get when we get into the book of Judges. And we see that the Israelites fall into this cycle. Their things are going okay. Then they start worshiping the gods of the culture around them, getting involved, intermarrying, and so on. Israel, the Lord removes his hand from them. He stops protecting them. He stops providing for them. He stops looking after them. And they become enslaved. They're slaves now in their own land. They cry out, God help us. I can't believe this is happening. We're so sorry. God raises up a judge. There was 12 of them. He raises up a judge. Israel gets delivered and things are going well again for a season. And then the cycle begins again and it repeats itself. If this was a marriage, it would look like this. I'm a jerk to my wife. She kicks me out. I feel bad. I apologize. I come bang on the door again and ask her to let me back in. She lets me back in. And then I do the same thing again. If this is a work situation, you start sliding in your productivity, you're stealing from the office, your boss fires you, you're unemployed for a season, you end up homeless and kind of desperate, so you go back to your boss and beg for forgiveness and say, I'll never do it again. He lets you back in and you do it again. Again and again and again. This is what the whole book of Judges is about. And in each of the times when the people would cry out for help, the Lord would raise up a judge. And when I say judge, I don't want you to think of kind of like a legal court, you know, wearing the fancy wig and the robes and the gavel behind the big mahogany desk. Think of more a military leader, 
a political leader, a spiritual counselor, someone who makes decisions for the people. 11 men and one woman. They're very unlikely leaders. These are not the uh, recent graduates of the Harvard Business School, okay? These are an eclectic group of people. Some of them are great leaders and some of them turn out to be not so great and we'll get to those in a minute. Some of them, there's just a line about them. I remember Shamgar. All it says about Shamgar is that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. An ox goad is like a shepherd's crook. Oh, and he saved Israel too. End of story. Other ones, they give us lots of details. The story of Othniel, who leads Israel through a season, and then they get into a chapter where they have 40 years of peace. How many middle school students do we have here? If you're still in the room, go home and read Judges chapter 3, the story of Ehud, the judge Ehud. You will thank me for it. You will not believe that you're reading the Bible. This is a very gory, gory story. Uh, It's rated PG-13, so uh, just FYI. In chapter 4, we get to hear the story of Deborah. And it's a big deal in the Old Testament day to have a female leader. God calls this woman to lead. Even she recognizes what a big deal it is because there's this great line where she commands her military general to go on and take on this battle, this group that was waging against them, and the leader kind of says, no, I'm too scared. You need to come with me. So she says, fine, I'll go with you. But then she says this to him, the honor will not be yours. (laughs) For the Lord will deliver their general into the hands of a woman. And off they go, and they're successful. But chapter 4 starts with this common refrain. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So they are captured. The army goes out and carries on the battle. The other military that they're facing has iron-clad chariots. These were the Sherman tanks of the ancient world. We're seeing the kind of the development of iron ore and the ability to shape it, and they start using it in their military pursuits. And the the war that the Israelites are going to go fight against, these guys are serious business. But the Lord grants them victory against them. The only problem is their king escapes, their king, Yabin. He escapes, and he runs off through Israel, and he finds this lady that he knows in Israel, and he thinks, well, She'll look after me. I'll go in her tent. I'll hide out here, and they'll never find me. So she goes into the tent. The woman's name is Yael. He goes into her tent. She treats him very well. Warm milk, gives him some food. He lays down to sleep. And while he's sleeping, she takes a tent peg and a hammer, and she drives it through his temple into the floor where he becomes anchored there, and he dies. Now, just a little tidbit of information. The Hebrew word yael, when it gets translated into English, is the word jill. (laughs) All of you who have a jill in your family, take notice. So the Israelites are victorious. There's this beautiful song to Deborah. And they have 40 years of peace after her leadership. And then the cycle repeats itself again. And Israel disobeys, and they start worshiping the gods of their neighbors. And we get to Gideon. When the story of Gideon comes to us, he's in a wine press threshing wheat. How many of you threshed wheat? How many of you made your own wine? This went over really well at the 930 service. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. He was hiding out there because he was so terrified of the Midianites who had surrounded them. 
And yet God calls Gideon, who is so reluctant and so fearful, and again and again and again, he walks with him and shapes him and teaches him to trust him so that he does become this incredible leader. But before Gideon goes off to lead Israel to freedom, God wants him to deal with some business at home. And he says to him, Gideon, your dad has an altar to Baal in his yard, and there's an Asherah pole there. I want you to go and destroy those before you give leadership to my people. And he does. And his neighbors and his family are furious and threaten to kill Gideon. But in the end, we see God coaching Gideon and he trusts him and he steps out in faith and he empowers him for everything that he needs to do and he leads the people to freedom and to victory. And at the very end of the Gideon story, Gideon is victorious and the people now are not trying to kill him and they're all happy and they're thanking him and they decide, Gideon, we need to make like some special garment in honor of your great leadership as a token of thanks and we'll use it to remember just how great God was to us. So they make this garment and they decide to put some gold on it to make it real special. And then do you remember what happens? They start worshiping the garment. And the cycle repeats itself again. And they fall out of favor with the Lord because they continue, they continue to worship these foreign gods. And then we get to the last judge, Samson. And if we're honest, he's probably the best known, but he is the worst judge. One of the things we need to remember when we read through these stories in the Old Testament and we come across characters, especially ones like Samson, we have to remember that they're in the Bible because God is doing something through their life, but their example is not always one that we should follow. Sometimes there's people in the scriptures and it describes their behavior, but we should not read it as if God is prescribing how we should behave. Samson is one of these characters. God calls his parents to have this little boy. They have to instruct, God has to instruct them how to raise him in a home of faith because they have no idea how to raise a kid in a home of faith. They give him very strict um, religious practices that they have to be a part of. He becomes a Nazarite is the word, which means no wine and you can't cut your hair. So he grows up with these very kind of strict religious behaviors in his home on one side, and yet on the other side, Samson's a, a loose cannon, and his lust and his anger get the best of him. Even after strict instructions not to intermarry, the very first thing Samson does when he gets out there is he sees this gorgeous Philistine girl and he goes right after her. His cockiness and his arrogance ends up getting his wife and her husband and her father burned to death. And in an act of revenge, Samson takes the jawbone of a donkey and he kills a thousand people with it. At the end of Samson's life, he hires a prostitute. He then falls in love with this other girl, and she woos him into giving all the military secrets up, which she uses to get back at Israel. And at the end of Samson's life, he dies. And he's the first judge where when he dies, it just says, they buried him. Every other judge, after they die, it says, Israel experienced a season of peace for 40 years, but not so with Samson. Now, I know that as I was reading through the book and maybe as you were reading through it too, you found there was, it was tough reading. It was discouraging reading to continually see these people fall back into these old habits of sin and disobedience. How easily they just walked away from the Lord, how easily things just kind of fell apart. 
But I think there is a warning to all of us in this book as well. And that is this, beware of the fade. What should bother us greatly as we make our way through the book of Judges is how quickly people drifted away from the Lord. That slow fade. This was supposed to be the land of milk and honey, living out the Ten Commandments. God, you blessing us, and we become a blessing to everybody, and people start watching the way we live, and they see how God is going to favor us, and they're going to want to be a part of that, and they're going to submit and humble themselves before the Lord and start to follow Him too. And none of that happens. None of that happens. Instead, we see Israel fade and forget. They stop telling their kids bedtime stories. They stop telling them about Abraham and Isaac and Rebecca. They stop telling them about Joseph, Miriam, and Moses. They stop passing on the stories. The kids grew up without knowing these stories. They stopped giving thanks at mealtime for the gift of another day, for the gift of provision, for the rain that fell that caused the crops to grow, which brought bounty for us so that we could have a meal. A new baby would be born and they never gave thanks for a healthy baby. And again and again and again, life became empty. They forgot all of these practices. They stopped worshiping at the temple. Hey, life's busy, I get it. Kids got schedules and you're go, go, go all the time and it's just hard to get there and it's hard to squeeze it in and you know, before you know it, we've been gone one week and then two and then two months and then it's been six months and now it's kind of embarrassing to go back and you know, you just drift away. They stopped remembering the Passover, that anchoring festival which reminded them of God's salvation in their life, that he rescued them and has called them and given them purpose. I mean, the first Passover, they had a hockey tournament, and then the next one, there was a shopping trip to Calais, and then, you know, and then before you know it, it's been six years. Slowly but surely, little by little, their faith grows cold, and it gets eroded as they drift away. And not just individuals, the whole nation. And the result of this fading way, and we see it captured in these last two chapters of the book of Judges, is just a mess, a dark and broken mess. As people forget the Lord, as they walk away from him, as they just kind of push him out of their lives completely, the last two chapters in Judges is just the mess of people walking in darkness. Maybe you've uh, gone camping or you've been outside in the summer when it's dark out. You walk outside and it's pitch black and you're fumbling around. You can barely find your way, but in 10 minutes... Your eyes adjust, and you can function quite well in the darkness. Israel was functioning quite well in the darkness. They got so used to living this way. I think there's a lesson for us here. There's a warning for us here that we do not fade away either that we do not drift into kind of a casual Christianity where, you know, I go to church and I read my Bible and I go to this thing once in a while and, you know, it's all just kind of nice and I do it when I want to. And slowly but surely, we drift and we fade. And when the drift starts, Israel, it happens when they start worshiping with their culture worshiped. In this case, we heard it, the word Baal and Asherah poles. And you're going to hear about these two things right up until we get to the New Testament. So let me just take a few minutes this morning to kind of explain the, what this religion was and some of its practices because, again, you're going to hear lots of it from now on. And maybe you're thinking, well, how bad is Baal worship? Is it kind of like, you know, just 
Different, different denominations have different worship practices. You know, the Wesleyans worship this way, the Baptists this way, the Anglicans this way, the Presbyterians this way. And so the Israelites did this and the ba- No, this was a completely different religion. It was a foreign God. And they become an ongoing challenge to the people of Israel and it will eventually lead to their destruction, to the collapse of their entire nation. Baal was the son of Dagon and El, two gods. And you're, you heard about Dagon in the story of Samson, and you'll hear about it again in the book of 1 Samuel. He was the giver of life, the giver of rain that came down and nourished the harvest. And when you had rain and you had harvests, you had prosperity. And so worshiping God was about, or worshiping Baal was about life and prosperity but their worship practices were brutal. Let's say it hadn't rained in two months, three months, four months. It was not uncommon for you to take your oldest son out to the altar in the backyard and slaughter him for Baal. Because clearly you had done something wrong to anger this God and you needed to get on his good books and the only thing that would work would be your greatest sacrifice, your most prized possession, and so you'd slaughter your oldest son. Other people would kill their oldest child and bury them into the foundation when they built a brand new house as a way of saying, God, I've given you my greatest sacrifice here, so now you owe me and you have to make me prosperous. And there were others. But the goal in worshiping Baal was always prosperity and blessing. The Asherah poles were another part of the Canaanite religion. This was the fertility god. They had statues of these voluptuous pregnant women And worship rituals involved having sex with temple prostitutes or having sex with other worshipers while you were at church because they believed it would bring about children. Blessing and children. Now, if you've been doing your Bible reading or paying attention in our services, your spidey senses should be tingling right about now because these are not new concepts to us. We've heard these elsewhere. What What were God's three promises to Abraham? Land, blessings, and children. And Israel already has their land. Israel was trying to get the very blessing of God, but to get it a different way. They were hungry for what God had promised them, but they decided we're going to do it our own way. We are going to get the very thing that God has offered to us, but we're going to find another way to get it. And you know, it is so easy when we read through a book like Judges, and maybe you found yourself doing this week, just kind of like astonished at how they could continue to do the same thing again and again, how they could refuse to learn their lesson, how they could commit such obvious offenses. And yet, if we're honest, we do the exact same things. We try to get God's blessings, the very thing that he has promised to us, the very thing our hearts are hungry for, any other way but his way. It's a temptation we all face. God has promised to provide for us. He's promised to look after us. And yet we decide to take matters into our own hands and look after things ourselves. God has called us to be his treasured possession, his priests, a holy nation, his beloved, his inheritance. These are all words which God has used to describe us. But we still choose to find approval and meaning and status in things that our culture holds up as important. God has promised us deep soul-cleansing forgiveness. 
but we still try to burn off the sins of our past by being good enough. And again and again and again, we behave just like the Israelites. We try to get the blessings of God, but we try to get them on our own terms and in our own way. You know, one of the things that's interesting as we read through this book is we realize you can drift away from the Lord, but you cannot drift back. No one drifts towards obedience and holiness. I've never heard anybody's testimony that said, you know, I really strayed from the Lord. God was completely out of my mind, not on my radar at all. And then one day I just woke up and I was reading my Bible and praying lots and, and serving the poor. No, that's never been anybody's testimony. No one drifts towards holiness and obedience. The road home starts by acknowledging that we have sinned, that we have wandered, that we have strayed, and the invitation to come home. And what we see 12 different times throughout the book of Judges is God providing the invitation for people to come home, to come back to him, to apologize or to repent for what they have done, and to welcome back in God's life and ever-blessing in their own lives. And it's an invitation for us today, too. If we feel that we have strayed and we have drifted and maybe we find ourselves in a season that we cannot believe that we're in, maybe we find ourselves doing things that we cannot believe we're doing, maybe we find ourselves becoming somebody that we never thought we would be. The lesson of Judges is that God is always working to bring us home. Jesus is our perfect Adam who gives and lives the life we were meant to live. Jesus is the perfect Abraham who brings God's blessing into our world. Jesus is the perfect Joseph who provides for us in difficult times. He's the perfect Moses who leads us out of the slavery of sin. And Jesus is the perfect judge who comes to us again and offers us a way out of our mess. That's our hope and prayer for you today. If you found yourself fading and straying, that you would hear the Lord's invitation to come home. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you that you continually offer us an invitation home. That no matter how broken things can be, no matter how far we can stray, no matter how cold our heart gets, you always open the door for us. And we thank you again, even though these people were flawed and imperfect and had all kinds of junk in their own life, that you didn't give up on this people you kept reaching out to them and bringing somebody along who would lead the way and show them that you had not forgotten about them. And today we are reminded that you have not forgotten about us. And today we just acknowledge publicly, not just as individuals, but as a church, that you are our Lord and that you alone can rescue us. And we give you thanks for that in Christ's name.